Fantasy-animation.org is a completely free online educational resource dedicated to examining the relationship between fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. Our weekly blog posts are written by professional animators and academics and explore a range of diverse topics from the sexual identity of SpongeBob SquarePants to the practical reality of how to make an animation documentary on a pair of knickers. Our podcasts, just like this one, feature expert guests including Oscar-winning animators, esteemed academics, folklorists and fans, all of whom help take Chris and I on a seemingly never-ending journey through the history and theory of these two overlapping media, mediums and genres. To find out more, visit fantasy-animation.org. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello listeners and welcome back to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I am Alex Sargent. And I am Chris Holliday. And today we're talking about Prince of Egypt, the 1998 DreamWorks animation, um, uh, remake or nominal remake of the Ten Commandments, but in animated CGI form, um, and the retelling of the Exodus story that's sort of been retold throughout film history from things like the Ten Commandments, the Cecil um, B. DeMille movie, which in itself is a remake of the 1923 movie, and indeed more recently in things like um, Exodus, God and Kings, the Ridley Scott film. Um, so it's a story that's been well told over and over again in film um, history, and in terms of uh, my sort of status as a fantasy historian and theorist, um, it's a really interesting story because it's one that kind of has always been embellished and played with cinematically um, and it really kind of trips that line between when we can start talking about a, a, a theological or religious text like this as as religion or as fantasy or as somewhere in between and that raises a lot of debates that have been well rehearsed in sort of fantasy schol- uh, scholarship about where, where the line is drawn or indeed if you can draw that line. Um, so I've got lots to talk about. How about you, Chris? Yeah, I've similarly, I'll take my cue from your um, where the line is drawn. And uh, I'm interested in the film, uh, both, I think, as a sort of cell animated CG hybrid, but I'm also interested in its sort of industrial status as a DreamWorks film. Uh, There's a degree of, I think, ontological sincerity to the film and the way that the narrative is told. Uh, And I think there are also some interesting links uh, that have been made between the film uh, and Disney animation of the period. And and also, I think 1998 is a particularly interesting uh, year for uh, for American animation. So, yep, really exciting excited to get going on this one and we have a very special guest join us on the podcast to help us unpack this and more about the film um, francesca stavrakapulu who is professor of hebrew bible and ancient religious studies at the university of exeter um, you might recognize francesca from the bbc television documentary bibles uh, buried secrets which i believe is now airing on at least the u.s version of netflix so any u.s listeners out there can catch that um, and she's also the author of many academic books on this subject including god and anatomy Um, and Land of Our Fathers, which as a proud um, son of a Welshman, um, I'm disappointed to learn wasn't about the history of of Welsh (laughs) identity, but instead the role of ancestor veneration in biblical land. Um, Francesca, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. And actually, my mum's quarter Welsh, and so that book title was a little nod to her and her ancestry. Great. Mm. Okay, well, There's no way we can bring that into the discussion, I don't think. But if you can think of it, great, we'll go for it. Um, So, Francesca, thanks for for joining us. And and with your your expertise and your research, it'll be really interesting to sort of start the conversation on on Prince of Egypt with some sort of general stuff on on the Exodus story, 
Um, obviously, it's a very famous story from from uh, the Bible as well as the um, the Torah and various other um, Judeo-Islamic religions. Um, could you give us a bit of a summary of you know, I guess the story itself, some thoughts on where it comes from, and and sort of where it where it sits within contemporary um, I get I don't know religions religious studies or religious culture in terms of an important story that seems to be retold again and again as as one of the sort of focal points mm. of of, of of Old Testament studies, I guess. Well, as you said, um, it's basically it's the central story um, within both the Jewish Bible and the Christian Bible. Um, so we know the Christian Bible as the Bible, um, and obviously within Christianity, that is the bit known as the Old Testament. Um, within Jewish tradition, um, obviously the Jewish Bible is called Tanakh. Um, doesn't have all that stuff about Jesus in it, obviously, um, and. Within Tanakh, the first five books of the Bible are the Torah, and Exodus is one of the books, or more properly, one of the scrolls in the ancient collection known as the Torah, which basically means teaching or law. But Exodus, like the story of Exodus, so not just as a text, but as a foundation narrative, is absolutely crucial to the understanding of the nature of the deity Yahweh and his relationship with the people known as the Israelites. Um, story is basically that a load of Israelites um, have ended up in Egypt, enslaved in Egypt. And that was kind of culturally, that's a very common motif. People were always going up and down into Egypt, given that Egypt's like a, a culture and an economy that that's, um, relies on the Nile um, rather than rainfall. You know, it's very common for people, for groups to move in and out of this, of this area. And the story goes that um, Moses has no idea that he has been born to what are called Hebrew mothers in the text, rather than Israelite Hebrew mothers, um, who apparently are all being killed by nasty Pharaoh. And he's trying to kill all the, you know, the, these newborns because these Hebrew women are so fertile and so strong, and he doesn't want this kind of slave population to kind of get too big and to overthrow him. So Moses is set in a little basket of reeds, floats down the Nile, picked up by um, a royal woman in the palace in Egypt, and is sort of makes good um, in the Egyptian court. So in that sense, there's nothing particularly original about it. I mean, there are various much older Mesopotamian traditions in which kings boast of being sort of set into a little basket and having this miraculous deliverance um, from a near-death experience when they were babies and then sort of being set into the river waters and kind of saved and kind of being raised up into greatness. So nothing original there. Um, and nothing original too about the idea of like, you know, local lad makes good in a foreign court kind of story. That's very common as well. But yeah, Moses then discovers, um, marries, marries into a tribal people um, called the Midianites. Um, and it's through them that he seems to encounter this deity um, known as Yahweh, who basically tells him, right, you've got to go and save my enslaved people. Um, which he does, which is what the film tries to present. So that's it, basically. But it's an important, it's a really important foundation myth in the sense that this is about the construction of Israelite identity. So in other words, the Israelites were a people who were originally outside of this particular land, and this land is promised to them by this deity who will liberate them from slavery and oppression and bring them into this land where they will then go on to commit mass genocide and kill all the Canaanites, but that's in later books. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a foundation legend. It's about identity and location and um, this bonding relationship between the Israelites and the deity. 
and it's a really thank you for that. That was a, a wonderful summary of it. And and it's an interesting. Well, I think we'll talk a little bit more as we think about Prince of Egypt. Is how this story kind of. Uh, has a certain pop culture resonance in the way that other biblical stories don't. Um, and part of that, you know, in terms of its cinematic retelling is relatively um, obvious to unpack in that it's got a lot of cool set pieces. Yeah, a lot of cool things you can put up on screen and some action beats. I mean, I don't remember the ro- um, ro- um, sort of robust chariot race that takes about 10 minutes into this movie. But, you know, embellishments, in fact, embellishments are, are kind of what I'm interested in, that how this story gets embellished by its cinematic retellings might be a really interesting way of, at least for me, unpacking the role of fantasy in all this, because uh, when academics who are trying to think through this relationship about fantasy and and uh, theology, they often think about this process of embellishment and this idea that quite a lot of uh, fantasy stories have theological iconography, have theological uh, substance to them, but they tend to sort of, you know, even back to things like Dante or Milton or things like that, they like to take it and then riff on it. Yeah. Um, so I guess I'm interested in just from the sort of first a viewing of it more recently and, and to get us going on the film, what do you think... You were str- did were you struck by anything watching it this time that sort of it was adding particularly to this this legend or or, yeah. or something that spoke to its sort of nineteen ninety eight identity? Yeah, I have completely forgotten because obviously I watched it years ago when it first mm. came out. Um, and I when I rewatched it again in preparation for talking to you guys, I had forgotten just how Christianized culturally and sort of Westernized the story is, and I was quite shocked. Um. And in some ways, that's simply a cultural thing, like, you know, like that chariot race, which is bonkers. Um, but, you know, it's clearly like riffing, you know, you think, oh, that's Ben-Hur and all the kind of Christianizing theology that comes out of that, like reflecting this very Americanized kind of idea of masculinity and all that kind of stuff. Um, but then other aspects of it are really heavily Christianized as well, like the portrayal of the deity, Yahweh, um, which we'll probably talk about a bit more when it comes to thinking about fantasy um, and animation, obviously. Um, but yeah, I, and I was, I was remembered watching it again, just how much I loved the way that there, there's a scene when Moses, um, in the film, when Moses sort of starts to, to think, he's sort of trying to start to remember that he is originally a Hebrew and he has this kind of dream, but it's all told in hieroglyphs. It's like he's looking at the hieroglyphics on the walls. And then, and that I thought was amazing. I'd forgotten how much I loved that because even though it's, it's you know, taking certain liberties with ancient Egyptian iconography, um, I thought that was really effective. But again, it, it sort of reminded me that, you know, the West has been obsessed with ancient Egypt, all things ancient Egyptian, for such a long time, particularly, you know, obviously since all the excavation um, projects back in the 19th century in particular. But yeah, it just made me remember that this is very much a story that's being given a very Western packaging but you know like a a colleague of mine who's a retired professor of biblical studies um, at the University of Sheffield we were in a conference the other day and and he made the really important comment that you know basically the Hebrew Bible in particular but also the New Testament um, everything else that comes after that everything else that we do in universities everything else that we study everything where all of that is just commentary on these set narratives and myths and stories um and I think you see that really clearly in something like Prince of Egypt, which, as you say, is like so. It's such a well-known story, and there are certain set scenes that we're so familiar with visually because it's been retold so often visually. But I just thought, bloody hell, this is very Western. I've forgotten quite how sort of Western this was. 
and I'd forgotten Val Kilmer existed. So that was also a pleasant <laughs> surprise. <laughs> I I suppose I, I'm interested in the packet in because use the word packaging to sort of describe the I suppose the act of translation whereas you said these foundational um, myths or legends that are central to um, I think you said the construction of Israelite identity and and I suppose the, the then question of, of fidelity and the act of retelling and, and I know Alex is interested in sort of fantasy's role in this this retelling of certain kinds of myths and, and folkloric traditions and and, uh, and I think so I, I think what I was really struck by, um, given animation's history of retelling and adaptation and the criticisms, and I remember we've talked about this when we did an episode on uh, on Hercules, this sort of sanitizing, and, and this is foundational to a lot of sort of writing on Disney is probably the key key kind of example. And DreamWorks has this kind of industrial relationship to, to Disney. It's a, in many ways, it's a post-Disney studio. It, it's, and it now only makes, what's interesting about Prince of Egypt is, is that it's one of only a couple of cell animated films that DreamWorks Animation made. They have now moved on to CG production. So this is one of the kind of early examples where they, it's only their second film and it's the second film that was released in 1998, a couple of months after their debut, Ants. So this is them kind of finding their feet. And and so what really struck me was how the film sort of declares that it is taking artistic and historic license, like right from the start. And 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 while Disney animated cartoons begin with the storybook, as you well know, and, and, and often begin with a voiceover, either an omniscient narrator or a, a sort of star voice, I think is, is part of the pleasure of these kinds of movies. You have a star voice and you're waiting to see the character that is going to embody the voice that you know. I, I was struck by how the film is quite declamatory in the way that, okay, this is, it's already kind of pre, it's kind of preempting or at least trying to preempt I imagine a series of conversations that the Disney studio have experienced for the past 10 years. And even, you know, this is the film, this is uh, Prince of Egypt comes a year after Hercules. So 98 and then 97. And I can totally imagine a world in which that title card was added quite late on. Um, as a sort of active response to the kinds of debates that have been circulating, certainly within Disney discourse throughout the 90s, but the way in which the films had been received. What's really interesting, because you said that... Um you, you just said that, you know, that, that title card, because I was really struck by that as well. I thought, oh, my God, I'd forgotten they did this. That title card, and there's one at the end as well, which is just, God, we need to talk about that too. But the one at the beginning, you took that to be Disney um, DreamWorks declaring, you know, this kind of taking some kind of artistic license with this, whereas I read that completely opposite way because it very much says, you know, we believe that this, you know, this is, true and i think it uses language of true to the essence or the spirit of the story and i'm like, true to the essence absolutely are you joking you have completely fabricated so much of this story and you have not only sanitized it but actually really um misrepresented quite a lot of what's actually going on in the biblical text um I, I was shocked by that and then the end title card as well you can imagine that there was a big conversation about that because the very last title card, basically, it gives you three biblical quotations, or three scriptural quotations, rather. One from the Hebrew Bible, so from the book of Deuteronomy, that talks about Moses being amazing. One from the New Testament that talks about Moses being amazing. And one from the Quran, which talks about Moses being amazing. Almost as if it's trying to say, you know, this is, this is the story of, of the great monotheistic Moses and the great monotheistic God. And the way that that's bookending it, as if to make... That final title card, having seen the beginning one, it made you think that this is basically the studio trying to say, yeah, this is pretty much what happened. 
this is pretty much faithful to you know, theologically robust. This is the theologically robust interpretation of the story. And I just thought, you know what, that is bollocks. So, so just, I mean, again, I was struck by the title card. This podcast could be about the title card, you know, <laughs> uh, unpack the title card, discuss. But um, I was struck by it as well in that, for my hat, it's like, okay, so what you're telling me is that don't worry, we're not going to, like, to, to, the, to, to audiences out there that are, are seeking this as some sort of visualisation of a, of, a, of a theological text, don't worry, we're not going to play around with it. We're going to be true to the essence of it. Uh, and that kind of closed down the opportunity to read it as a fantasy movie which in yeah. many ways it could be read as um but I, I and i think it probably might be time for my impossible question i always ask an impossible question francesca you're getting it this week i think is but i think i'd like to know how it would be true to the essence in that unless i you know misunderstand this like this is a a, a story that's been retold rechanged re-altered um contains elements that you know if people don't uh you know many people just don't believe in and those that do believe in certainly don't recognize as being part of everyday experience um and it kind of reminded me of debates Chris and I have had about fidelity to things like folklore, when folklore doesn't have an original text anyway. So what on earth would a, a, a true folklore story look like? Well, a similar thing here, right? So w- w- how does one judge the accuracy of this tale when there is no core to judge it against? Well, exactly. I mean, first off, historically, most biblical scholars would agree that this is not a historical event or account um this is you know this is not historical but also secondly even in the book of exodus itself you've got different versions of different episodes within this you know competing traditions about what happened so for example the scene at the sea which we all know in in contemporary culture as the the red sea it's not called the red sea at all it's called the yam Suf, which is the reed sea or the sea of reeds um in the earliest text that we have in the bible in the hebrew bible It's not Moses that parts the waters or is the the channel, you know, the kind of the mediator who channels Yahweh's power. It's Yahweh himself who smashes it up with his arms and his hands and like snorts a hot divine breath on it through his nostrils and dismembers the waters. Um, And that's riffing off a much earlier, very much more important mythological theme that we find throughout ancient Southwest Asian cultures, including ancient Israelite cultures which is that this sea was originally a monster, a sea monster, who was dismembered by the deity Yahweh. So if you're asking this, the impossible question is, you know, how can you be true to this story, to the essence of this story? Because you're absolutely right. There is there is no essence to it. It is, even within its biblical context, even within its historical cultural context, it's, it's a shifting story. It, it, it's ever-changing. So, yeah, that title card. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, so I, there's lots of things that are now kind of swirling around my head that are both related to and not related to the title card, but we can stay with the title card generally. Um, one, I think it, remi- it reminds me of the sorts of debates that are had around animated documentary and the role of animation to be able to visualise something. It's, it's obviously in, in a different, you know, it's, it's differences, perhaps one of degree rather than kind, but the ways in which animation can intervene into into, a, into something truthful like a documentary. So um, uh, Annabelle Honus Rowe's book on animated documentary talks about the ways in which animation can be used either as a mimetic substitution to stand in for missing footage, uh, non-mimetic substitution, so a sort of... Um, 
I suppose, creating new meaning through a substituted image. But then I think, then this is the, the third one is evocation. So kind of using the powers of animation to express something that wasn't captured, but is more of a kind of psychology or psychological uh, state or a feeling. Uh, and so part of the sort of truth-telling potential of this or, or the film's claims towards evoking some kind of truth i i wonder whether li lies in the the ability of the animation to to do something here um and so i i, I think i'm interested in the film so the film is what yeah 98 so three years after toy story we're in the digital revolution of hollywood in the 1990s and then this film is cell animation and there is something around sincerity and cell animation and kind of modernity and, and transformation and uh, cgi the kinds of narratives that you expect to see in a, a computer animated film are talking toys and stuff set in space what you expect to see as a sort of cell animated film is like the princess and the frog so something traditional and something and there is a degree of sincerity that goes together with the ontology of cell animation and I and I wonder whether given that this film is the second as I said the second DreamWorks film of 98 so they just made their debut computer animated film it's the year before Toy Story 2 it's three years after uh, the first Toy Story uh, we've had Independence Day we've had two Jurassic Parks we've and this is a sort of cell animated you know relatively traditional and I just wonder whether the filmmakers are sort of leaning on the cultural associations that we have with cell animation as something uh, I don't know something truthful in some sense or something that isn't the spectacular nature of CGI it's not dinosaurs and it's not spaceships it's not you know it's not Independence Day but what it is is something that is we're just using animation as a tool and a hand-drawn artisanal tool to tell an effective story that evokes a kind of truth in some broad sense. But that's because it's the Bible, right? I mean, that's the thing. Like the Bible, unlike any other collection of texts, ancient texts, the Bible is in its own status. It's It's got its own mm. cultural icon, you know, whether you believe it or not. Um, it is the most influential book, arguably, on the planet in, in the history of, of, of human cultures. And so... What you were saying there about um, kind of the, the use of the decision to use cell animation and, and, and as as a means of trying to perhaps yeah yeah it's that it's it's more reverent isn't it it's more kind of it, it's the mm. treating this particular story because it's biblical differently than you know because you said oh it's not dinosaurs I mean it's not dinosaurs and it's you know it's not talking toys and but it's about a deity. It's about an imagined being who is just, mm. you know, um, who is still a very powerful social presence in the world today. You know, I don't believe that there is anything like I don't believe in God, but for a lot of people, it's it, this is still a really important social actor. In I think, well, no, I think that's right. The reverence is something I hadn't. Yeah, that there is. And I, I don't think I didn't think that sincerity was perhaps quite the right word, but a reverence of doing justice to a story in a way that isn't mediating it through a computer like like everything else. Is yeah. there's something? And again, this goes back to bigger questions around how we value hand drawn animation and the idea of craft in relation to storytelling, and 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 I guess going back to kind of uh, scriptures and all these things that don't have technology between between us and the world. It's something that is quite kind of immediate and personal, um, which is why I think you know these old disney movies open with a book you know i'm waiting for the disney film in a couple of years time that begins with a computer booting up but i guess with wreck it ralph we've already had it um but there's something sort of again there's something interesting around the sincerity that i think we as audiences give i think that's partly why as i said I, that the, the disney went back 
not only did they go back to a princess narrative in 2009 for the princess and the frog, they went back into the medium that we associate princess narratives with, i.e. cell animation. And so there's something there's something striking about the significance or the reverence, I think is the yeah, the, but, the perfect way to push it. Do you think but do you think that might reflect as well? Thinking about because you know, I watched all the credits as well when I rewatched the film. Um and you know, I was so struck by just the sheer number of people it takes to put together something like this. I always am anything, teleprogram, whatever it is, like the sheer number of people. But there's something also, isn't there, about um, that notion of craft and the, and the use of artisans is a really big theme in the film itself, in Prince of Egypt. It's really heavily emphasised all the way through. The idea of mm. what humans can make compared to what God yeah. can make. And, but also, you know, elevating, you know, ancient Egyptian iconography and artisans and all that kind of stuff. And you kind of, I just thought, well, you know, maybe these people who are using this cell animation, maybe they kind of feel some kind of a connection to the actual subject mm. matter that they're, that they're drawing, that they are, you know, the inheritors of this very, um, you know, highly celebrated art form. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think the the value of collective labor or the value that's being placed on collective labor is really is really striking. The film begins after that title card. Um, there, I've I've done it. I've said it. We're moving past the title card um, with these sorts of scenes of slavery and 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 labor. Uh, and and there's some really interesting plays. I think with a kind of shift in fake lens focus to show the sense of scale of all these these slaves working. You know, the the, the multitude extends far into the into the and the, into the horizon. Um, and also, there is something perhaps in an industrial level about and we've talked about this before about cell animated films and the way that the the credits are organized because in cell animation traditionally uh, animators work on particular characters so you have like the genie and then the list of the voice the character designer the movement the fit and they're partitioned by characters Uh, in computer animated films more recent computer animated films characters work on shots so if a shot has 10 cuts, potentially 10 different animators worked on each of those different shots within a minute or something like that. Whereas in cell animation, they tended to work on characters. And so you have this, you have all these great voices and great minds and creative personnel and practitioners that are sitting behind the genie or sitting behind Moses or something like that. So the way that, and obviously then credits have to replicate that. So you have the headings and, um, and so the way that the, the cell animated films credits tend to be organized actually really emphasize the, the plurality of voices within animation and actually how performance isn't something that you can anchor to just one person. It's, it's the product of the collective. Hmm. And I th- and I think all what that does is it 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 makes me think that unlike quite a lot of the films we end up talking about on this podcast, the the animation fantasy relationship that we're constantly exploring is actually kind of antagonistic almost in this in this film because that rhetoric and the the way the animation is used and the kind of style is being used it, it kind of creates this dialogue where actually the animation is being used to visualize and it's not being used to embellish and and or at least you know that's certainly what it's going for and and it's this sense that what we're doing is bringing to life on screen something that you have read and something that you have imagined and something that you have been told but something that you haven't seen in all the clarity that we're about to show you and what that means is that the place of fantasy becomes slightly more fractious and slightly more something that sort of hides behind doors and peeks around weird scenes and stuff and it becomes 
where the embellishment for the fantasy comes in, I think, is probably much more in its in its status as a musical, and the way music and song are being used as moments of embellishment and being quite self consciously um, moments of embellishment. That hang on, don't worry, we're going to pause the story you know for a second and add something to it, but we're doing it for the sake of making it a musical, and that gives us license to embellish, to change, to alter, and add these kind of moments of self conscious rupture from the original story. So anything from that opening kind of you know grand scene where 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 they sort of sing a sort of hymn to god whilst while the pro- sort of prologue happens to you know the kind of one of probably the worst sequences i must confess far as i could see was the sort of the musical odd musical number where the kind of henchmen do a very strange song about like egyptian gods and it's steve martin and martin short and it all goes a bit like um i don't know emperor's new groove or something like that um but these the musical seems to be the thing that is where the film is comfortable embellishing the story and saying to audiences now we're having fun and we're going to play with it but that's really interesting because as, as a biblical scholar Actually, I felt that the musical numbers were actually more in keeping with the spirit and the essence of the story in a way because one of the things that you find, and it's really hard to, when you're reading it in English translation, it's really hard to, to notice it, but actually all of the Hebrew Bible is shot through with poetry and song um, and even in Exodus. So like Miriam, Moses' sister, sings a song, you know, celebrating what's happened at, you know, this event at the sea with the Egyptians. Um, Moses, you know, it's called the Song of Moses, where this very ancient poem in the middle of Exodus, Exodus 15, where um, it's describing what Yahweh does to the sea. And so in that sense, that seemed to me, even though the words um, were not great, the lyrics aren't fantastic in some of those songs, um, but I quite liked the musical bits because in some ways that was more in keeping with a kind of an ancient, very ancient commentary, if you like, on this mm. story. Where it really takes the piss is inventing this whole relationship between Moses and Ramesses, which is just not there. And even inventing having Aaron um, and Miriam there when this little baby is set off. These are all separate characters that in in the actual story in Exodus, they, they don't have these that, uh, that familial relationship at all yeah so so two points on that one actually I, I do like the music in general i thought that particular sequence i highlight wasn't very good but it's, it's stephen schwartz isn't it who went on and did yeah. things like wicked and things like that so you know all all on board for the music um and i take your point about sort of a lot of them communicate a sense of the spiritual as well don't they and certainly that opening number and indeed the sort of what mariah carey whitney um uh breakthrough smash wasn't it that's very sort yeah. of um, evoking evoking some level of transcendence and faith and and things like that um i was what was my second point going to be um boys to men at the end as well don't forget them yeah, actually, that, and thank you. That's my second point about how late 1990s it is. Is that is, is that is that actually some of the embellishments are are. Well, they were, one of the embellishments that struck me was the, is the relationship, but maybe this isn't an embellishment, but I checked my Bible this, this afternoon, so so maybe King James um, is to blame here. But, the, you know, the, the embellishment of, of Moses and his wife um, and the sort of meeting in the tent, that, you know, she, and she's she's very much a sort of almost Esmeralda from um, Hunchback of Notre Dame-esque figure. She's sort of, you know, sexualized and, and, and fierce um, in, you know, quotation marks and independent in that kind of hollow, I'm going to shout a lot in the first 10 minutes of the movie and then essentially play the domestic wife yeah. for the rest of the film stuff. Um, Aaron is Jeff Goldblum, which yeah. fine, yeah. you know, just because 
fine. Um, but but very kind of the wise cracking, um, uh, you know, sard sardonic presence in the movie that very much fits within these sort of 1990s um, templates. Um, and then your point about um, what was the the the, the point? Ah, uh, you the, the the embellishment you didn't like with oh with the, with the brothers. So the brothers thing is that Ben Hur? Is that where that comes from? Well, maybe I don't know, but it's just... the um. The Ridley Scott Gods of Exodus thing, um, that does exactly the same yeah, thing. Yeah. So that's trickled down as well as part of I the I mean, story. in later, it's interesting because you do get that in later Jewish and some rabbinic traditions, you do get a much close, you, you get much more. Ancient rabbis and Christian scholars are doing exactly what these animators are doing, which is like they're trying to fill in the gaps that are in the text because there's stuff that the text doesn't say. We have no idea, you know, we have no idea how. Um, you know how Aaron and and Miriam got on. You know they're never. It's 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 that whole sense of trying to fill in the gaps, the emotional human gaps. You know we want to find the emotion in any story, don't we? And that's just not in the text. We have no idea about Moses. Moses wouldn't have like sort of broken down and wept as Ramesses, you know, cradled the corpse of his dead son. Um, you know that's not that's not the point. The point was, yeah, our oh, God's going to kill you lot. That, and that is what a god should do. You know, that's a good thing to do. And killing the firstborn is the most effective way to culturally and socially castrate your enemy because that's what it's doing. It's kind of cutting off, you know, your descendants. Um, and so all of that emotional stuff, none of that is in, very little of that is in the Hebrew Bible and certainly in the Hebrew Bible version of Exodus. But you do find that later Jewish and Christian commentators do try and fill in those gaps in ways that are similar to the sorts of things that we find in Western sort of artistic retellings of the story. So to give it that kind of, but yeah, that whole brother's theme is ridiculous. <laughs> Very cross about that. Were there a certain moment, I mean, I've now got, I, I, the minute you said Boys to Men, I was I wrote down something about Mulan, which is the film that was released 1998. It's Disney's film that was released this the, the same year. Um, obviously, you know, as we know, it's it's taking place in China during the Han Dynasty, and also features a wonderful song by the band 98 Degrees featuring Stevie Wonder. So uh, two great songs. The song is called True to Your Life, um, True to Your Heart. Look it up. Um, anyway, so I was thinking about uh, what actually this is part of is the 1998ness of it. Um, and, and, and what the film is doing as one, I think the musical, the art of musicals as poetic embellishment, I think is very, very one. I think it's very 1998, but it's also uh, ties into this idea of the c computer animated films are, tradi are traditionally not musicals, but cell animated films are. And so Toy Story is not a musical. Toy Story 2 isn't a musical. And so the way it uses music is very in keeping with the way that animated features of the late 80s, the Disney Renaissance into the 90s, um, used music. Uh, and so, as you as you said, the, the kind of Schwartz-Hans Zimmer collaboration um, makes the film, I think, really good in lots of ways in the way it uses mu music. But it's interesting that, as you say, that those musical numbers are, on the one hand, embellishments, but also the most authentic parts of the, of the, yeah. of the film. I was also thinking about its use of kind of CGI, and you mentioned all as part of the the westernized retelling at the start. You talked about the kind of chariot race, and I was thinking that this is the year before the sort of pod race of the the, the Star Wars um, Phantom Menace, and I was thinking about the rise of kind of uh, first person video games and kind of thrill rides at theme parks. And so I wrote, and as part of my notes, you have a kind of I think it's CG when Moses's basket is kind of flowing down the river. Um, you have that terrific hieroglyph scene that you mentioned which i think is is where animation is kind of declared 
declaring its animationness. This is the bit that isn't the truth bit of it, and and what that I think that sequence does is is justify or tries to cast an authenticity onto the bits either side of it by showing this is what animation could do, but we've gone kind of authentic in other bits. Um, uh, and then the kind of yeah the the sort of I mean I've got I wrote down it's very similar to the Lion King Simba Moses kills a man leaves returns to Pride Rock all that business, um, but the use of yeah that sort of first person remember the chariot race has a lot of point of view shots and very so actually in terms of its expressive use of animation its digital um, imagery uh, there's a there's a lot and this is a really important you know late nineties is where Disney's starting to integrate more and more um, digital effects into its predominantly two anim- two D animated films so this is, film is very much of nineteen ninety eight in the way it's starting to integrate and using CG digital technologies for moments of spectacle and I think that chariot race is is kind of it doesn't fit, but it's it's kind of terrific in going. This is how we can kind of reorient perspective within animated cartoons using using digital technology. And also, the camel was brilliant. <laughs> um, just uh, when that camel runs away, when when he goes off with Zippera, and you just see that shot of like the back of a camel disappearing with his little legs and his little feet flapping. That I to me that 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 was one of my favourite as a highlight for me of the movie. Just that. So. One of the first we've got history on this podcast of talking about why animated films tend to make horses into dogs, and I feel like it's the same principle of camels. Basically, all animated horses yep. act like dogs as a general rule, um, and I feel like that that courtesy extends to zebras and also camels. And that's all I've got. That's all I've got to say about that. Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, so so the chariot race happens, and then we get a sort of. Um, yeah, a, a setting scene where we, we learn about this familial relationship between Ramesses and, and Moses, which Francesca has rightly pointed out, the, the sort of, yeah, oddness of it. And, and I guess maybe that what part of that is to set up this kind of, you know, tortured, mas- 1998 tortured masculinity yeah. figure. Don't worry, Moses is, is strong, but he's also really kind and doesn't want to kill the firstborns, but will uh, in that kind of, yeah, uh, flawed action hero sense of the word. Um, and then, and then um, I guess now is probably a good point to talk about the sort of Caucasianness of all of this, in both in the design, which is sort of very strange <laughs> to put it a, sort of blunt in terms of the different. Um, you know, obviously we've got Egyptians, we've got um, Hebrews. Um, I don't quite know what race the um, the Maybe two psychics are supposed to be, but they're right. certainly. I think we could talk about um, the Semitic or anti-Semitic kind of undertones of those two characters, um, which is bizarre um and the voice cast right where we what we've got are val kilmer uh, michelle pfeiffer um sandra bullock jeff goldblum voicing all 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 the um all the actors which which i think obviously is something we could speak about in terms of the politics of animation of this period it's you know it's as chris has said mulan aladdin uh pocahontas these are all films that have been very rightly criticized since for their sort of desire to whitewash their voice cast Sorry, I was saying that and the kind of the prominent black voice that's in the movie is Jethro, who is the Midianite high priest, who is this, mm. you know, depicted. I mean, it's such a horrid caricature, isn't it? As this kind of fat comedy, desert dwelling, tribal kind of, you know, sort of seemingly primitive people, mm. um, which is playing on a huge number of, of, um, very unpleasant tropes about Bedouin people because they're kind of modelled on this kind of Bedouin sort of the Midianites are modelled in the film in this Bedouin sort of tribe and you just think God you know it's just 
I mean, it's bad now, isn't it? But um, you'd have thought that even back in 1998, there'd have been some kind of recognition that there's a very much a them and us thing going on here and the othering of those who are not Hebrews. Basically, we're meant to identify the Hebrews as white people. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a certain passing notion in the film in that, in that Moses passes as Egyptian mm. um, by putting on a wig, it would seem. Um, you know, and then he takes off the wig at the moment he sort of reclaims his heritage. So there's a kind of whole, you know, false fluidity um, and yet also, yeah, uh, use of the grotesque in the animation and and, and yeah. stereotyping, which is which is bizarre. But I wonder if you could say, like, you know, because obviously, you know, we could we can throw uh, accusations at this movie, which we will and can about whitewashing. But obviously, whitewashing is not new to uh, Christian stories of the Bible, right? So, you know, when when did Moses become from sort of you know um, you know Norfolk? Primarily in the hands of early Christian. Mm-hmm. scholars and we're talking kind of very early so some of the early church fathers so say around the third to the fourth to the fifth century ce that's when you begin to get okay. a real emphasis on color coding um figures like jesus um and some of the you know and the prominent prophets and um, particularly somebody like moses with there's always been embedded within christianity right from its beginnings even though christianity began as a a subset of of Jewish, the different Jewish groups. So it's, it began as a Jewish cult, basically. Um, you get an anti-Semitism very, very early in Christianity. I mean, you know, something like John's Gospel is deeply anti-Semitic. I mean, horribly, repugnantly anti-Semitic. Um, so the relationship between Christianity and Judaism is already very complex right from its very beginning. But when it comes to whitewashing Christ, for example, yeah, that begins really, really early as well. Um, He's not, you know, he's kind of Jewish, but not too Jewish. Um, or certain sorts of people that need to be saved tend to be characterised um, by some early church fathers, thinking about people like Jerome, Saint Jerome, um, as as being literally black. They are Ethiopians who are covered in filth um, and baptism into faith in Christ will wash them clean and turn their skin white as snow. I mean, it's drawing on the colour codedness you get. It's a very dualistic theology that you get in early Christianity, which is about, you know, darkness is evil and sin and brightness and whiteness is um, basically light and Christ and, you know, good coming into the world. Um, but, yeah, so it's it's already deeply, deeply embedded. I mean, Christianity is founded um, in some ways on othering those who are not Christians, which means primarily is Jewish people, and then becomes, you know, othering other sorts of people too. So it is horrific. Um, I, I mean, I I think it can be tied quite quite interestingly to obviously Alex gestured to it the sort of the industry of star voice casting. You know, this is only five years before um, DreamWorks makes Sinbad. Uh, they make an adaptation of Sinbad: Legends of the Seven Seas and have Brad Pitt voicing Sinbad. And so there there, are, there is there is form in the way that again, you know, the late nineties ness of it all and the and the rise of of sort of star voices against you know film is a place where stars are allowed to voice animated characters television is where trained voice artists 
hone their hone their trade. They work on you know video games, they work on television, long form television series, but animated films are where we can get extent. And this is as, as Alex rightly said, this is a sort of uh, an ensemble cast in in lots of ways. And and the uh, DreamWorks previous film Ants is similarly expansive and the kinds of of, of voice. Um, or star voices that it hires, the kind of stars that, that are part of its um, part of its cast, and so animation. And we, you know, we will, we have and will continue to talk about. I think the the issue of having certain kinds of voices uh, voice certain kinds of characters and what it means for animated you know stars we expect stars to sound a certain way um what happens when stars put accents on how does that work in terms of of sort of uh yeah forms of minstrelsy you know all these sorts of uh, this this disjuncture between the 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 body and the voice and how bodies certain bodies are defined physically certain bodies are given a voice certain bodies are defined through their intellect and all and I think star voices is all part of this and and, and yeah going through the the voice cast for this film it's it's great it's a who's who of people that were famous in the 1990s and in some cases still are but it's also a, a who's who of famous white people who were famous in the 1990s and Danny Glover yeah. and it's sort of a really uh, and you know there are a couple of a couple of other um, non-white performers, but largely speaking, it's kind of comedians. It's Shakespearean, you know, Patrick Stewart. It's uh, stars who had just come off the back of the Speed movies and While You Were Sleeping, Sandra Bullock. It's Catwoman, Michelle Pfeiffer. It's again Shakespeare, Rafe Fiennes. So it's some, there are some really interesting. Um, kind of body politics that are going on when when we think about animated performance and voice artistry and and, and part and definitely part of this when you're telling a story like this um kind of connects up to um yeah exactly what alex said this this kind of the politics of, of passing and color coding and 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 sort of blackface and also you know just as a kind of i just thinking about voices and what you hear it always unsettles me when you hear in movies and tv stuff when God is an American. I mean, not that God should be English either. I mean, it's very interesting that most of the Egyptian characters in this have English accents because they're the end, you know, they're the villains. It's very kind of traditional kind of trope, isn't it, that baddies are, have English mm. accents. Um, but yeah, it's just, there's, you, you'd have thought that because they're in the music, there's such an emphasis on Middle Eastern, and I'm doing air quotes here, Middle Eastern sounding, you know, you've got a lot of, um, Jewish um, kind of melodies and obviously a lot of a lot of Jewish hymns, you know, post-biblical Jewish hymns as well as stuff that draws on the Hebrew Bible um, and all of those kind of Middle Eastern sounds and the musical numbers. And yet when God speaks, like he doesn't bother to like have some kind of vaguely sort of like ancient Southwest Asian sort of accent. Um, you know, he doesn't sound, I mean, this is a Jewish God we're talking about here. He doesn't sound Jewish in that sense. He doesn't, you know, doesn't speak like somebody from, that part of the world at all and you just every time I hear God with an American accent it's like oh yeah it just this is really not helping the whole kind of problem that America in particular has with its relationship with the Christian God it is a very unhelpful thing to think that they are made you know that God is an American made in the image of his his genuine worshippers I'm probably going to get so much hate for saying that kind of stuff I just realized but anyway what no, well, in all honesty, you know, we're recording this um, the week of, of 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 the you know the U.S. Capitol getting stormed, and, yeah. and, and then I and then I watched Prince of Egypt, and I must yeah. confess the song, "There Can Be Miracles When You Believe." Um, you know, well, yes, but you can also storm the U.S. Capitol if you believe something you know strongly enough, even though there's no um, reality to it. So, so I think I think you're quite right to sort of make those those parallels. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'm, I'm aware that we're sort of time is getting a little bit away for us, and we've given Chris all his animation c- context he wants, but we haven't talked about any miracles. And you know, as a fantasy theorist and historian, I need my miracles. So I'm glad that you mentioned God and burning bush because that's miracle number one. Um, and I wondered if we could sort of go through them and have a little chat about how they're depicted and 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 what if there's anything interesting to say about it. To me, I mean, you know, again, I was struck by the voice, and it's and it's Val Kilmer, right? He's doing the dual role, so it's Moses is God, God yeah. is Moses, and and all of them are united by being Val Kilmer, um, uh, which is you know, I I. I, yeah, interesting. And Val Kilmer's a really interesting actor in that, you know, a lot of his roles that made him famous are from, you know, fantasy films. He's Batman. Um, but more importantly, well, not more importantly, but in my head, he's Mad Mordigan from Willow, which I don't know if anyone's seen Willow, but Willow starts with um, a midwife putting uh, a chosen prophesized baby into some reeds, shooting them down the river, and, and Willow, uh, the child ends up in a sort of surrogate family. So yeah. uh, Val Kilmer, ch- casting Val Kilmer as Moses nods to a certain pop culture reference that's really important and then to have that also be the voice of god is really fascinating there's also an element of mufasa to the to the burning tree and that we've got you know disembodied ghostly figure with echoey voice booms on screen um yeah any 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 thoughts on 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 god i am what i am or whatever he says yeah um yeah, well, just to be a geek for a moment, we don't know if it is I am what I am. It's just that it's, it's even in the Hebrew, it's really difficult to translate. It doesn't really mean anything. So it seems to be fudging. You know, he basically says, I am Yahweh. That's what he would have said. And he says, you knew me by a different, you know, you knew me by a different name. You knew me as, El, you know, your ancestors knew me as El Shaddai. But actually, my, you know, they didn't know. My real name is Yahweh. It's a blatant bit of spin doctrine. It's basically these are two separate deities in terms of the history of religion that have been cobbled together by these editors in the book of Exodus. Anyway, the burning bush scene, though, is really interesting because what you've got with the burning bush is this kind of pretty, delicate, lilac kind of haze around it, which is not the kind of, not the colour of of the deity at all. I mean, for a start, the deity had a body. Um, The burning bush is trying to get away the story in the Hebrew Bible is trying to get away from it's trying to say that God's body is hidden. And my I've just written a whole book on God's body, um, out later this year. Um, but that burning bush scene is really interesting because it looks so delicate, but it also reminded me so much of Indiana Jones. Um, all of those scenes, like the Ark of the Covenant scene, um, you know, where you kind of like the very end when the Nazis get fried, and you've kind of got this kind of swirling, kind of ghostly, kind of whizzy kind of and I just thought there's a real nod to Indiana Jones and the Ark of the Covenant there, which I, I quite enjoyed, even though I find it frustrating as a biblical scholar, because it's just not in the text at all. But this delicate purple kind of haze, um, is, Moses would be spinning in his grave if he saw that today. It's not the way that, that the deity would. This, this has to be a raging, bright, burning, kind of like a a shining, dazzling fire. That This is like a divine fire, which is completely different from the very delicate kind of lavender-scented sort of burning bush that you get in the film. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Indiana Jones because obviously the Spielberg connection, that his role, industrial role in, in kind of the founding of, of DreamWorks S, he is the S of uh, DreamWorks mm-hmm. SKG, uh, and then this sort of Indiana Jones action-adventure, and I just wonder whether there's something around um, the development of action cinema in the 90s as a result of a certain kind of move towards digital technologies um, that would then culminate in something like the first uh, 
prequel of the, the Star Wars films. Um, this film is very exciting. I felt like the, the connections to Indiana Jones are are correct and, and certainly fit in with the way I think that the film is is packaged, to go back to, to that word, um, as something that perhaps, I don't know, I again, I live in a world where there is a parallel universe where there's an adaptation of this on video game and an adaptation on television. And it's very sort of, um, yeah, I think packaged as, as a certain kind of late 90s action adventure. But, um. but it really reminded me too of Ghostbusters. Uh, every time you've got a divine being, so supposedly the power of God. And when I was talking earlier about this is very much a Christianized, westernized retelling of this story, it's because whenever you sort of see the presence of the deity, so whether it's this kind of um, malevolent kind of, you know, the angel of death that comes over Egypt and kind of, you know, it's this kind of, wispy white kind of you know sort of a bit like ghostbusters when you have some of the ghosts and ghostbusters especially the the really nasty frightening ones like the willow the wisp kind of swish around and it's like that it's the idea that somehow god is spirit that god is not like the egyptian gods who pop up you know in that kind of that set scene that's really taking the piss out of polytheism which annoys me a huge amount mm. um we've got all the different gods it's kind of like poor moses it's just him and his solitary deity versus pharaoh and his kind of you know pantheon of deities and you just think well actually this is a very the, the hebrew god in this particular film is very much portrayed visually as the god not of the hebrew bible so of jewish tradition but the god of the new testament this is a god of who is spirit this is a god who who is is heard but but not really seen but when he is seen it's this kind of this puff of kind of air this kind of supernatural presence rather than a divine presence if you kind of get the difference that i'm drawing there are we saying here that god has also gone through the sort of you know um as well as being christianized he's gone through the sort of 1998 troubled masculinity treatment and that he's he's an all-powerful omniscient god that could make fire and smite anything he wants but the fire will be kind of lavender-esque and scented and you know i think it is because you've got some of the kind of classic classic kind of tropes and motifs from the biblical story itself so the pillars of fire and stuff when you get to the sea and all that kind of thing that then you know in the in the Hebrew Bible are going to lead the Israelites through the wilderness. But yeah, there's generally this kind of very wispy, kind of windy, um, it's a windy God, basically, which, yeah, he's very closely associated with very powerful, you know, he was a, he was a thunder God, essentially, he was a storm God, originally, Yahweh. But yeah, it struck me that this was a very kind of, you know, what is God? God is this kind of wispy, white spirit sort of thing, which I found, again, very annoying. And God is windy will be the quote of the <laughs> podcast. It would seem. Um, cool. All right. So let's that's miracle one. Let's let's rock it through the rest of them. So we got the we got the plagues. We got to get the we got to get do the plagues. Yeah. Uh, I don't really have anything to say about the plagues. Well, I just felt, oh, good. Oh, right, then. Well, to me, it looked like when the Nile turns to blood, it looked very much like Moses was having a period, which I <laughs> I thought was an unfortunate image. Um, that's cool. the quote. That's the quote. <laughs> 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 um, which I and I felt for him very much on that mm. score. Um, but yeah, but we, we ought not to call them miracles. The song is there might be miracles, but miracles again is a New Testament Christian, in other words, a Greek term. You do not find that in the Hebrew Bible. These are this is just what God. These are at most you could call them. What could you call them? This is the presence of God. Um, this is what God does. Um, this is this kind of weaponry. This is this you know so fire from heaven. The plagues and you know the pestilence; these are all stock parts of Yahweh's arsenal. Like this is just what he does. 
and you've got lots of in the books of Psalms, in the book of Isaiah, in the book of Job. You've got all this kind of shit going on as well. I mean, amazing shit, don't get me wrong. But yeah, so we can't call them miracles. So again, an example of the Christianizing of these sorts of manifestations of divine presence and divine power. Well, I think another way of, call, you know, we could call them miracle, or we shouldn't call them miracles, but we could also call them moments of digital intervention. If you talk about armory and weaponry and, and the things that are, this is where the CG is used at its most sort of declamatory. Where and I was trying to be interesting to sort of go through and figure out the moments where the the film leans on digital technology are the moments where it's trying to to articulate a sense of difference and, and a sense of spectacle. Um, and so whether it's uh, plagues of locusts, frog, frogs, the parting of the sea, obviously is is the is the the sort of standout. It's the poster image, if you like. But it would be interesting to sort of yeah again industrially part of the 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 uh, armory that that the film had or the, the tools that the film has at its disposal as a way of articulating certain kinds of you know miracles are are, are related to i think the technology that's used to produce them that that the digital off, offers something different and in a narrative like this the, the the difference of miracles is is perfectly suited to the power of of kind of computer manipulation right so so god is both wispy and and not a miracle but also digital in this movie um, that's interesting what you're saying about miracles, though, um, Francisco, in that in the, the, the I was I was thinking about and rereading a few texts on sort of this murky relationship between fantasy and religion. And quite a few theorists have sort of weighed in with this idea that kind of essentially they're cut from the same cro- cloth in that, you know, fantasy fiction is a post-European, in, well, a European post-enlightenment phenom- phenomenon. It relies on a certain worldview that is you know, largely empirical, but with a certain sort of, you know, uh, Judeo-Christian background. Um, and thus, you know, it only makes sense to talk about things that are fantasy stories if they are made in that mold and they are deliberately trying to sort of offer something impossible to a worldview that's much more rational. And thus, there's just no, there's no point trying to unpick this. But others have sort of said that actually what the what the christian worldview brings to to europe that makes that makes it completely compatible with fantasy is this idea of figurative truth right and that that the actually the worldview is is that you know you 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 should spend you know for the, i guess this goes back to like st augustine and things like that right but like you you, you the the good christian spends their life searching desperately for moments of figurative rather than literal truth and thus the word miracle is the oh good thank god my worldview has been affirmed by something literal happening in front of my eyes that i have always believed figuratively yeah and that's interesting because when you think about the way in which the film because actually when we think about the word miracle within its kind of new testament context which is why it's so closely associated with the bible because that's where it comes from and it describes the you know the power acts the 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 magic um that jesus performs and you know, Moses is very much a magician um, in the Hebrew Bible, just as Jesus is very much a magician in the New Testament. And in and in the iconography of early Christianity, the earliest Christian iconography often shows Jesus as this kind of like, you know, clean shaven young guy with literally with a magic wand. That's how he performs his miracles. Um, that's the earliest Christian iconography that we have. And And what's so interesting, I think, is that actually what's being presented in the film as a kind of a, a kind of a, a face-off between divine power on the one hand which is god as mm. in god and magic which is kind of trickery and fakery by the egyptian priests actually that's 
that idea of magic is, you know, that's the very kind of modern concept of magic. Mm-hmm. You know, because this was about ritual power. What do you do? What rituals do you perform? What words do you encant? What ingredients do you bring together um, in order to create a new reality? And that's what ancient religious magic and ancient religious practice was about. And when these texts were originally crafted, um, and and so that kind of false dichotomy between divine power on the one hand and fake you know magic which is trickery which is tricking people on the other or fooling people is 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 kind of represented in the film and yet it it misunderstands that there's that there is no there's a very kind of fluid relationship between the notion of divine presence and and a deity doing something like causing a you know a plague of frogs or locusts to come upon the people or turning river you know river waters red with blood or even dismembering <laughs> the watery body of this kind of sea monster like all mm. of that is completely straightforward so what christian what we've inherited in the west is the idea that christianity sits really uncomfortably there's this tension in christian culture between the idea that actually the most the most unbelievable thing happened which is that jesus resurrected from the dead and that's cast as a historical truth it really mm. happened that's what christians claim which is bonkers of course it is but it's it's the idea that therefore are miracles figurative truths or are they real truths actually at the heart of christianity is the idea that this kind of the miraculous is historical truth it's real truth it's mm. a thing that actually happens and because all the other stuff that was promised doesn't happen like all the other dead are going to resurrect from their graves and then all of a sudden the heavenly realm is going to crash into the earthly realm going to be the great apocalypse there's going to be eternal peace and love and joy ever after because that doesn't happen then you start to get the shift in the first few centuries of christianity we're like oh okay so maybe that kind of we do need to think a bit more about the figurative truth of the miraculous as opposed to the historical concrete um rational truth i suppose of the miraculous but the film's quite interesting and in how it kind of tries to 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 distinguish between divine power on the one hand and and you know the evidence of the divine presence within yeah. the earthly realm and kind of egyptian magic on the other because um yeah you, you can't it would be very difficult even in the hebrew bible stories it's quite difficult to tell the difference between the stuff that the egyptian priests do and the stuff that moses does with his magic wand yeah quite and they even make that point don't they with the with the with the um this when the sea turns to blood they yeah. sort of ah look it's the same we're doing it you're doing it so yeah it's, all the same and, and the way they play that out and i guess the difference the film at least posits is that the 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 divine acts um reveal a deeper truth that they don't know whilst the magic um is a sort of yeah it's a, it's a superficial way of disguising the real truth which is that the egyptian gods don't exist now i'm doing yeah. quotation marks um and that playoff between paganism or you know mon- uh, monotheism and, and um, polytheism is part of the the sort of the yeah you're, you mean you said it earlier but like it's part of the the villains versus heroes yeah. thing going on there right which is yeah i'm not quite sure why it needs to do that i mean but it definitely does yeah exactly because on the one hand it kind of celebrates you know in that very western way as i was said at the beginning like this real celebration and fascination and obsession with all things ancient egyptian that, mm. that we have and yet on the other hand it completely you know it's very derogatory in the way in which it portrays ancient egyptian religion as somehow mm cabaret which is basically the scene that you get in the film that musical number it's just cabaret and you just think well come on a minute you know 
or like folklore and superstition in the kind of yeah you know it's it's my god imagine believing in that whilst <laughs> whilst whilst the, the the lavender scented bush burns in the background exactly. um yeah chris go on you look inquisitive no I'm, I'm just sort of yeah i mean there's something to be said around animation's relationship to to magic anyway and i i don't know what what to say about it other than um the histories of the magic lantern and and the the relationship that i know that we've we've spoken around kind of belief and and and, and stuff like that and animation is this as itself an illusion and, a, and a, a form of pleasurable illusion and 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 this this point around the film how it treats that relationship between divine power and, and egyptian magic and also the kinds of characters that it associates again you have the sincerity of moses versus the sort of slapstick comedy of Hotep and He, so Steve Martin and, as you said earlier, Martin Short's characters, and the way that it attributes certain kinds of forms of illusion to, so they're the characters that playfully pretend that they've managed to equally turn the the, the, the water red into blood, just because because we can all do it, so it's it's the film is perhaps quite quite um, I don't know uh, clever in the way that it's playing with the idea of truth, belief how easy it is to do something how how um, the role of, of the role of miraculous activity um, and how miraculous activity can be used to at, at the level of character and narrative perhaps allow us to to I don't know identify with certain kinds of characters because of their relationship to magic and miracles uh, and ideas of power and authority and i think again i think this ties back to to sincerity i was surprised at how given what we know about dreamworks animation and and what it would go on to do you know it would be remiss for me not to mention sam summer's book on on um, dreamworks animation that talks about how this film um how this film sort of sets up a series of, I guess, a series of things that DreamWorks Animation kind of disregards. You know, it moves on to stuff like Shrek, things that are a lot more... Where, where the film goes, it follows the characters of, of Steve Martin and Martin Short rather than follow the Moses path. It goes, it moves towards that kind of cabaret that you're describing, that sort of animated anarchy. The film is, in, you know, the film is interesting because it, it sort of shifts away from talking animals and gives us different kinds of miracles. <laughs> but what it what it does do is that it sets up a kind of, of uh, DreamWorks identity that ultimately there's some subsequent films will go on to sort of disregard they become a lot more hip with their pop culture references and actually that's part of the reason i quite like this film as a as a sort of serious exploration into well serious in in dreamworks terms i guess but it doesn't rely on the kinds of things and the kinds of narrative devices um that the dreamworks films that would perhaps go on to to do but no i like that idea of of certain kinds of characters that are looking at the cast list i think steve martin and martin short are the only sort of outward comedians in the in the cast and so it is interesting how a film chooses to align them with the superficiality or the superficial illusion of certain kinds of magic tricks that are we we see them being performed as tricks by certain kinds of entertainers um as opposed to the the truthfulness and the authenticity of of moses who sort of is allowed to play it a little bit more straight um, I feel we should probably wrap up, but I guess as a means of wrapping up, should we say any? Do we, we we haven't even got to the parting of the waters, and we you know the, the the tablets come down. They managed to squeeze that in. So is there anything we could just say about the final sort of you know climactic denouement that needs to be said um, as a means of, of wrapping up? I mean, Francesca, you best you best take this. Well, I mean, the the end of the film is my favourite bit, and actually, I remember weeping slightly at the end of the film the first time I saw it. And I got a bit misty-eyed this time, a bit teary-eyed this time. But then 
I'm a sucker for the right combination of music and that kind of stuff. And I, I cry in adverts. But um, but one of the things I like best, I think, about the sea scene, firstly, that it looks like the Med, which is hilarious. Um, because, you know, if like, they get there, it's just like this huge kind of ocean in front of them. Again, reflecting this very kind of Americanized kind of view of what a, a sea is. Um, but I, what is really effective about it, and I think what is, again, air quotes, true to the biblical story is that the Hebrew text often speaks about the waters being piled up in a heap. And I thought they did that really effectively. I, I really like the way that they did that. Um, I love the silhouettes of the fish and the shark in the waters. I really, really love that bit. Um, obviously, saving Pharaoh, uh, you know, as far as the Hebrew Bible is concerned, Pharaoh and his army and his chariots are drowned in the sea. You know, the sea goes down on top of them. There's a brilliant um, early rabbinic tradition in which Yahweh, the, the God, God is himself, is holding Pharaoh and is, he's literally holding them under the waters, trying to drown them. And all his kind of host of heaven are singing. And he says, can you just shut up a minute because I can't hear them screaming? Um, which is a fantastic, you know, that should be made into a, some kind of film. But yeah, so I like those bits. And my favourite, favourite bit of all is that when Moses comes down the mountain with the tablets, which, again, typically in a nod to the great Ten Commandments film, you know, Tom Hester, he's, a, you know, he's carrying these two huge stone slabs. They, the Hebrew Bible doesn't have that in mind at all. They have in mind little clay tablets, you know, kind of double-sided clay tablets. Um, but the scene is, you, he looks down into the valley and it's a shot of, if you were coming down what is now known traditionally as Mount Sinai today, as you come down, from Mount Sinai, as I've done several times, and you look down and you basically see in the valley below you um, St. Catherine's Monastery, and it's basically that. And I love the kind of historical realism of that shot, the kind of, you know, the geographical realism of that. It's like, that's a, that's the site I have seen. I've been there. And all of a sudden, it was it was animated, and I, I really enjoyed that bit. And I think that's probably what made me go a bit teary at the end. I'm going to put a shout out in for I really like I mean I really like the um sorts of expressionistic plays. I mean it happens a little bit in in the song that has the line you're playing with the big boys now. Uh and it, and, and also the hieroglyphic scene. I I do really like the scenes towards the end. I guess the bit before the bits that you're talking about the where Ramesses' son dies and you have some really expressive plays with kind of light and dark and and, and shadow and and there's a bit where he's sort of standing crestfallen over uh, I think over the chart and he's sort of leaning on I thought that was really kind of evocative some of the ways in which I think the film is is in many ways it's 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 at its best when it's not trying to kind of represent a continuation of the kinds of hand-drawn hyper-real imagery of, of Disney films of the 90s. I think it's it's absolute, and maybe that's where it, its dreamworksness comes in. It's, it's, it's most dreamworksy when it when it moves away from that kind of um, hyper-realist aesthetic and more towards uh, a really kind of uh, expressionistic play with with how we can use animation or how they can use animation to evoke a particular kind of uh, of story and actually i think that's if i remember right it's it's where the sort of film is at its most sort of black and what the color becomes drained from a lot of the final sequences so when moses puts his hand on his brother's kind of or stands behind i think he's standing behind and he's holding i i thought that was kind of great and really drains out some of the the sort of bright orangey colors from earlier on in the in the film where the where the slaves are, are kind of toiling in the sun um i really like that that juxtaposition towards the the end of the film where the color seems kind of drained out of the film um 
yeah, I, I really like that bit towards the end. Yeah, and and I guess for me, I I thought the ending was really interestingly sort of um, uh, travel narrative-y and that sort of, you know, it's very quietly played. We don't get the Ten Commandments, but obviously we get the very obvious signal of it, but it's not, none of it's in the dialogue and we get this sort of, you know, scene of them, you know, beginning the walk, so to speak. And, you know, it almost reminds me of sort of the end of... um, you know, of like the Lord of the Rings or something like that, you know, and fantasy stories like to end with a sense that the, you know, the road goes ever on and on, as to- Tolkien said, which actually I think if the Bible's number one, I believe the Lord of the Rings is the second highest selling book in Europe and US at least. So there's a, there's an interesting um, chart position for us all. So that idea that sort of, and I've never understood, like I've always, I remember as a kid when like, you know, and I'm, I'm not raised in a religious family at all, but uh, we had a copy of the Bible and I think I must, must have gone to see Joseph at the West End and got briefly obsessed with early um, uh, Old Testament history. And like that desire to tell the full story has, has been a sort of a tension within contemporary Hollywood. I believe the the the, the Ridley Scott, the, the Exodus Gods and Kings, the reason it has that weird subtitle in it is because they sort of hoped that maybe if it did well, they'd tell the next bit yeah. and the next bit, you know, in the in, and, and sort of, you know. So I'm waiting for the I'm waiting for the Old Testament miniseries. Probably HBO will make it soon. Um, um, because there's that sense of that the film is ending, but of course the story carries on. In fact, even it says something like that, right? Um, and I was just struck by that. It was quite a, a muted but but mm. triumphant end which I you know artistically was very very satisfying in fact honestly I've always said it should be, I mean it's been done so many times in so many different ways hasn't it but but yeah I would love to see more animated bible like but but you know being done in a way that um has Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey singing on sure. it. Sure. <laughs> and, and, and does the more kind of eccentric bits rather than just these, these sort of three or four stories yeah exactly the best bits Bible. That's what it needs to be called. Cool. Well, on that note, um, uh, Francesca, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on this, and it really helped us unpack the film. So, and I'm sure listeners will appreciate it as well. So, thanks so much. Um, you mentioned, I believe, you mentioned a book um, at some point in that discussion. So, so give us, give us the yeah, coming out later this, later this year, 2021. Look out for it. Okay, great. So, and, and learn more about God's body. And its various parts. Um, and uh, Francesca, you can you can follow Francesca on Twitter, and um, you know she's available, freely Googleable. So do check out um, some of her work if you've not done so already, or I'm sure many have. You can follow us at uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit at Fananim Research. F A N A N I M Research. Take part in the conversations, um, give us some feedback, and of course you can read our latest blogs and download the podcast archive at fantasy-animation.org. Otherwise, thanks. Uh, for listening for another week and we will see you next time goodbye bye